We are here at the 11FS office in London for episode 118 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Attack of the 10-Ton Regulator, Libra's Last Legs, and Zuck's a Sitting Duck later this month. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by David Nickel, who's head of digital asset over R3. Becoming a bit of a regular these days, David. How are you I'm, doing? I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Enjoying these nice new digs you have. I know. They're a little bit different, aren't they? Very nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely come on whenever you'd like with these kind yeah, of Yeah, come offices. hang out. It's a nice place to be these days, the uh, 11FS studio. And uh, we're joined by Isabel Woodford, fintech reporter at Sifted. How are you doing, Isabel? Very well, thank you. Always happy to have you slide into my DMs. Get involved in all things blockchain. And it's been a big, big week. But before we get into the news, I just have to remind everybody that we made a documentary. It's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech. And it's available now to watch for free at 11years.film. And it's all about how fintech rose from the ashes of the financial crisis and why London became a fintech ecosystem that everybody's trying to learn from. So you can find out much, much more at 11years.film. But let's get on the the news, shall we? Okay, first story this week could have come from literally any outlet in the world. We used the BBC because they did a pretty decent summary. This was about payments giants abandoning Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency project. So MasterCard, Visa, eBay, and Stripe have all pulled out on the project, which follows the withdrawal of payments giant PayPal. Uh, PayU is now the only payments-related firm that remains from the six that were initially involved. And the withdrawals come after U.S. Senators Sherrod Brown and Brian Schatz wrote open letters to the CEOs urging them to exit the chilling project. The letter's actually ridiculous, and you can read it if you check it out online. Basically, a threat that blamed the hypotheticals of money laundering, child trafficking, etc. as the sole reason you shouldn't be involved in all things Libra. It was basically, check yourself before you riggity-wreck yourself, <laughs> folks involved with Libra. Shout out to Preston Byrne for that one. But enough of, of my views on this. I mean, Isabel, what did you think when you saw all of these payments companies sort of Backing away. <laughs> I, I thought of the Homer Simpson gif. I mean, this is just, I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in uh, the, the first governance meeting this week for Libra that they're hosting. I mean, in a way, it's not surprising that these are the people who've pulled out first, right? They're the most risk-averse payment processes. Perhaps we'd been a little bit more cynical. We might have seen this coming from this group. It might be too early to rule Libra out entirely. As I say, this this might be the kind of thing where it should be predictable. You know, these are highly regulated payment you know banking systems and so uh, companies rather and uh, bad news for for Facebook but perhaps not devastating Oh, interesting. How do you view this one, David, from uh, like a Libra project standpoint, if you, as you look at that with some experience in digital assets? Yeah, so I, I think it's definitely a, a tough week for them, but I definitely also applaud uh, David Marcus's um, public affairs game on, mm-hmm. on his response, which I think we'll get to. No, I, th- I think that uh, your, your description of the letter as, as a bit ridiculous is tough because I, I think the letter was really ambiguous. It listed a lot of different concerns that were not really that well explained. But that said, I think it also shows you why so much of this engagement is important before you actually start rolling things out. It, it's a timing thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in that I think the the move fast and break things is it doesn't apply as well when you've got 2 billion customers and you're proposing a systemically important financial system. But then the flip side of that is there's 
massive problems in the world. We're sitting in London, the Extinction Rebellion's happening outside. There are people for whom just payments is impossible. Cash is something that's an everyday problem, and Facebook are actively trying to fix that too. And to your point about David Marcus, uh, we usually do Twitter of the Week later. But I'm just going to read out what his response was, which I, I thought the PR game, as you said, was spot on. So what he said was, Special thanks to Visa and MasterCard for sticking out until the 11th hour. The pressure has been intense, brackets, understatement. And I respect their decision to wait until there's regulatory clarity for Libra to proceed versus the invoked threats by many on their business. I would caution against reading the fate of Libra into this update. Of course, it's not great news in the short term, but in a way, it's liberating. Libra 18. Um, Stay tuned for more (laughs) very soon. Change on this magnitude is hard. You know you're onto something when the pressure builds. It's kind of right. I mean, yeah, as I say, I, I kind of agree with this. It's it's difficult when it comes from inside the company. You know, you, you've got to always take a little bit of a sceptical stance. But I do agree. I don't know what you guys think. Do you, do you think this is Facebook nearly waving the white flag of surrender or, or are we far off that? So so hot take here. I still think Libra will launch. Yeah. And probably not on the time frame that they originally had in mind. But I think that this is exactly the type of project that a lot of different institutional markets have been asking for. And I think it's just about changing the design, the makeup, the approach to regulators that needs to happen. I think that that's happening based on this reaction. I also think that that David Marcus said there's regulatory clarity. I I don't know that there quite is yet. And I think that the uh, multi-currency nature of of the basket of currencies that back Libra is part of the issue there. I think that's a really interesting insight in that if you look at where Libra was when it launched and when it they announced in May-June time, I think it was, June, and what it is now, it's coming a remarkable distance already, yeah. mostly through David Marcus's Twitter account, but it has come <laughs> a remarkable distance in terms of what it was to, to what it now is. Yeah. And you consider the ground they've covered in that space of time. Like if you were to look at all of the different components of what Libra is, nobody's really arguing with them on the technology side. Everyone's like, the tech's actually, wow, you guys have done some incredible things. It's the the legalities of the Libra Association and what's its jurisdiction and how will it respond to regulators, which is kind of a bit thin on the ground, which is why, to the point that was made, if they do get to this inaugural meeting and they do have an association and they have and it's funded, that association has never existed. Mm -hmm. So Facebook has kind of been in the firing line taking bullets with no association to speak for itself. If that thing does get there, it will be in a a different place entirely. Absolutely. I think that would be a big step forward for the whole organization because I think we've seen from multiple sides of, of those involved in the project that it's not necessarily that setting up Libra and running Libra was their dream forever. If you think about Facebook, they always wanted to just own the endpoint, provide the wallet. Mm-hmm. It's, it would be a lot better if someone else had already stood up Libra. So I think that through all the turbulence, if they do get to a design that can meet the burden of, of regulatory scrutiny, that can be used by both uh, retail users and enterprises, and you know is built on a, on a blockchain that actually works for this at, at scale, then you know all the other folks win who want to provide the things around the side of this. It's kind of crazy to me that this this level of scrutiny is is kind of coming on such a small group of people in Facebook at the moment. But under massive pressure, coal turns into diamonds. So if they can keep this pace up and they can weather the storm, like the sky's the limit for Libra. And there's, it, it seems to me, I mean, Isabel, I don't know how you see this from a reporter's perspective, but it, almost everybody has something to hate about Libra. But one by one, they're sort of knocking over those issues and concerns. Yeah, it's almost weird for Facebook to be playing the underdog uh, role yeah. in this one. But um, I'm kind of pulling for them for that reason, right? I mean, because they are the underdog. Yeah, there are obviously pockets 
sense of support. And, I, and, and, you know, if they do succeed, they'll be the ones laughing in a way. There are just so many hurdles. That's the reality. And this is them slowly and, as you say, with grace and dignity, seemingly attempting to to go one by one across those. So many sub-stories. The G7 have come out and said Libra should not go ahead unless it proves it's safe and secure. The Bank of International Settlements has made statements. There's still a lot of work to do and hard yards to do here, but um, let's see if that happens. Yeah, it's like if you're a regulator and you have a Twitter account, then you actually have to weigh in this week, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, i, I got to say, crypto Twitter has been fire this week. Not least David Marcus and Nick Zabo having a back and forth, which is, well, if you don't follow David Marcus on Twitter, like that's where you go to learn about at least how Facebook view Libra. It's it, it's phenomenal the amount of work he's putting out there. And of course, did anybody see Open Libra, which came out of DevCon? This was the uh, fork of Libra creating a permissionless stablecoin free of corporate control done by the guys, some ETH developers. In Libra, we trust. In Facebook, we don't. I thought that was nice and tongue in cheek. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting for it to not be under Libra control or under under corporate control rather, but it's pegged to Libra. So Libra has to exist. <laughs> in order for this open Libra project to exist. But look, if they do sort out all the problems that we just mentioned, then this could be a, a really interesting open source development. I think that's one of the benefits of this wave of software development that we're seeing is that there's so much attention and so much resource being put to open source code mm-hmm. that there are lots of these things that can they can jump off you know, related to Libra or other projects as well. Do you think this is a real genuine challenge to banks and in the world of payments anytime soon? Because it certainly feels like it's been received, is that? As it's designed, no, not at all. I, th- I think that it could be a great solution for retail payments, especially cross-border. But I think the underlying structure, this is back to Libra, the underlying structure of the multiple currencies in a basket. I mean, Colin Platt has has written about this at length. Colin, if you're listening, it's got to get shorter, man. It's really difficult to manage that that basket of currencies. And I think uh, Anderson Horowitz just said today that the way forward may be to base this only on U.S. dollars to begin with, mm-hmm. just be a U.S. dollar stablecoin. Which makes it even scarier to the People's Bank of China, mm. which means central bank-issued digital currencies from a Chinese perspective become even more important because then it's the dollarization of the Facebook network. Yeah, it's on a dissimilar structure, though. The People's Bank of China is a two-tiered structure, right, with with uh, banks in the middle between the, the, the end users and, and the PBOC, People's Bank of China. I mean, Facebook, if they just back this with accounts at U.S. dollar institutions in the U.S., um, could could have a very similar structure. It starts to look not dissimilar to J.P. Morgan coin eventually. It's sort of walking its way toward like a digital asset in the, the regulated world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the big opportunity here. One of the things we've said on, on past episodes is that I think one of the, the big advantages or one of the big uh, services that the Libra project has done for this whole space is it's made people think more about this in a different way. I mean, yeah. if they do, if they do just become a, a USD stablecoin. Isn't there an argument or a question of why they didn't just integrate an existing USD stablecoin? You know, why wouldn't, that, wouldn't that have saved a lot of heartache? Well, so interesting. This comes back to the technology point, right? I mean, a how well reserved and or backed are those stablecoins that are out there? I mean, we've seen with Bitfinex and Tether, yeah, there are some questions. <laughs> Perhaps um, more, yeah. Uh, like and things. and then uh, you know, if you're doing a Facebook scale, then you probably need to create your own 
backing or reserve of that in some way, shape or form. But doing it with multiple currencies is hard. So doing it with one currency is easier. Mm. Uh, so you probably want that legal entity that can do that and manage it that, that looks like Libra. You kind of need that thing whichever way you do it. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been easier to start small, though. It might have been easier to just adopt them, those smaller existing stable coins and then say, oh, there's a need for one. But actually what's needed right. is somebody to hold lots of real world dollars. So we're going to set this thing up and we're going to do it in partnership with the regulator. Yeah, and in a way you would have almost had consumers support them because you create some sort of you know mm. micro dependency and then people say oh no we do really want this and mm. then you know what fuels regulators well demand and pressure yeah Absolutely. and i think to the technology point i think they also looked at the blockchains that are out there and looked at how they can scale and i think they when they looked at what what the numbers actually showed they said okay we have to do something different uh-huh. it's, it's not dissimilar to, to other projects that are out there like ours i think that there there's a real opportunity now that everyone's thinking this way to actually bring together a bunch of financial institutions who think about the regulatory approach first and foremost and then go to the tech and, and the business case, et cetera, to see if they can provide something, whether it's for retail or, or business-to-business payments. Indeed, speaking of regulators, this story comes from the SEC.gov. The SEC has halted an alleged $1.7 billion unregistered digital token offering. Wow. So the SEC today announced that it's filed an emergency action, obtained a temporary restraining order against two offshore entities, Telegram Group Inc. and Tun Issuer Inc., uh, conducting an alleged unregistered ongoing digital token offering in the U.S. and overseas that's raised more than $1.7 billion of investor funds. And I'm going to read this quote from the SEC. Our emergency action today is intended to prevent Telegram from flooding U.S. markets with digital tokens that we allege were unlawfully sold. We allege that defendants have failed to provide investors with information regarding Grams, the name of the token, and Telegram business operations, financial condition, risk factors, and management that the securities laws require. Wow. Big, big week. Importance of getting stuff right before you you take actions, I guess, once again, proven here. Yeah, definitely. And you, you said, uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself, or whatever yeah. Preston's quote was. Uh, the, check yourself before you wreck to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I have a confession, which is that I used to think the uh, the Eminem song was, uh, the lyric was, because the SEC won't let me be. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, I was trying to get that. I yeah. didn't know if Eminem was, was uh, becoming a bank w- or was something. Was he getting into uh, ICOs? Because this goes back to the ICO boom a couple of years ago now as well. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I saw a tweet this morning. I don't know if you guys saw it. Uh, a Twitter user called Francine McKenna, who said that she had got, tried to call the number on uh, Telegram's SEC filing, mm. and it goes to a PR firm, not the company or the attorney. Anecdote there of, of what perhaps is underlying this. Yeah. It's I- notably different from the uh, the EO story, where they did the offering, raised billions, and then were fined $24 million. Okay, so it's not the right thing to do, but it's, um, it's an interesting business model. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so the, so the part, part of what's happened here is there's a belief, and I'm not sure where this is from, but I've seen this from a number of uh, lawyers who've probably done their homework on Twitter, that said that there's a view that Telegram hadn't responded to a subpoena from the SEC, whereas my suspicion is EOS probably did respond to a subpoena and sort of came forward and, and looked to you know, robustly defend their position, but also make conciliatory actions where required. And and that does appear to be a sensible way forward. If you've raised $4 billion and you get fined $24 million and then you can get to a point of being regulated, it's not a bad place to be. Yeah. Again, bumps in the road. It's an interesting way to get to, uh, mm. get to a product. But it also, it, it said... Uh, the story claimed that Telegram were in conversations with the SEC for the last 18 months about this. So I think it, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, that it is really important to go with regulatory engagement up front and 
get this cleared from the beginning. And I think to the kind of heavy-handed approach that regulators can take all over the world, it's important to not treat them always like the bad guys. It's, it's, helped to, it's helpful to educate and, mm-hmm. and bring everyone along in the journey. Educate and explain. I think that that kind of sets the scene for a couple of other things that had happened in the background. We saw last week that there was the, what was the name of the group of organizations that started listing coin ratings? Oh, yeah, with like Coinbase and things. Yeah, Crypto Ratings Council. And what they did is sort of had a one to five point scale in which some things were securities and some things were not. And of course, for them, Tone didn't look a lot like a security. To the SEC, it really, really does. So that the timing of that's going to be a shot across the bow for that organization. Yeah, I think also they, they also listed one that was then called a security as well uh, last week. I can't remember the name of the token. Uh, but. And it seems like the SAFT agreement, the, uh, I think, simple agreement for future tokens, in and of itself has not been a defense, but the people who created the SAFT would say it was never intended to be mm-hmm. because you could have that legal contract, but you still had to be really, really careful about how you were sort of managing that sale to both to non-US persons and how you were describing what you were doing. So, mm-hmm. And I think there were some, some views to the contrary. So the importance of getting regulatory engagement right, yes, but also the sheer difficulty of understanding what this space looks like because when it comes to it, the regulators are going to look at the the facts and the actions you took, not what contracts you had in place. And so it, it really is about behaviors and actions more so than what you think you did to protect yourself. It's, it's what you really did. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a big space there. And whether it's filled by the SEC with a different approach or third-party services firms who who go ahead and provide these services. But I think the, the SEC has been used to receiving applications from companies who really want to issue securities. And, and their traditional securities, their regular securities, it's easy. And, and then we can have a nice, fun conversation about WeWork if we want. Uh-huh. But they're now in a place where they have to do a lot of enforcement about people who don't really want these things to be issued as securities. I think helping people understand from the beginning you know, what's a security and um, how to start engaging with the regulator, to your point, so that your actions and, and the entire, you know, journey, as we said, is is something that the regulator can actually engage with and work with. That, that'll be really important. There's a real pushback from the VC community on, you know, is the regulator hampering innovation here? How, how do you see that, Isabel? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the SEC really should be in bed with these VCs. They're there to try and protect and yeah. inform and regulate a space that ultimately they are going to lose money on, if not. I don't know. I mean, obviously, there is always a tension. And I've said before, we love to hate regulators, oh, yeah. um, but you know, so I think doing their job. The theme here is, you know, regulatory certainty will work out for some and not for others. And, you know, it's kind of... Uh, not everybody's going to be a winner. But there were some real A-list VCs involved in Telegram, like Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, a mm-hmm. couple of others. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it gives me faith in the justice system and the regulators because it shows that no matter how much money you have and the names and the profiles, you mean, you've seen with Facebook, et cetera, they are fundamentally coming down hard on whoever you are and however much money you have. It made me laugh. They said that they had spoken to their lawyers about this and had kind of given the the green light. I wonder if the lawyer is going to be going out of business because I can't tell you how many companies I've spoken to who said our lawyers have approved this. This is oh. definitely not a security, according to our lawyers. So perhaps some fresh legal minds in the in the space. But a, a legal position that you can issue something that is not a security and then 
you as an organization then behaving that way are two different things. So a lawyer can say, if you do these things, it's not a security. Mm-hmm. It's up to you then to, to make sure you do those things in that way. So to, again, to the point, a lot of people created a soft contract and thought, oh, I'm done. But around that, there were a lot of behaviors incumbent upon the issuer. The person that created these tokens had a lot of actions and activities to do. And it wasn't just getting a legal opinion from somebody else. Ultimately, responsibility sits with the issuer. It's kind of nuts. That's not all from the SEC, folks, though. story comes from Decrypt. The SEC is not convinced a real Bitcoin market exists, and it denies the Bitwise Bitcoin ETF. The denial has been seen by many as the, in the industry as scathing. It dropped a 112-page order disapproving the latest proposal. The most cited thing from the SEC was that 95% of crypto exchange volumes are fake. Mm. Wow. The SEC did not agree that Bitcoin markets are resistant to manipulation either, <laughs> which suggests that Bitwise had <laughs> suggested that it was, which is kind of not true. <laughs> Some killer quotes in here, but um, regulatory certainty seems to be the theme here. Like, not everybody's going to love it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that it's uh, it's definitely a thematic week on on that front. I think that it's funny. You said 95% of crypto exchange volumes are fake. I, I, I confess, I was too busy watching the 11 years film to get through all 112 pages, Simon. Yeah, you like that. No, I was wondering whether those volumes are just front-running or if it's different types Define of trades. Define fake, right, yeah. Yeah, because I think the BIS put out a really good, well, I say really good, it's as good as it can be. It's a video about fake trading volumes by algos in the bond market. This kind of um, market activity is not limited to crypto, right? It yeah, happens. In, you, you would see similar things that one might have seen described here as quote-unquote fake exactly. that you would expect in markets, yeah. right? So the use of fake is a bit, it's colorful language. Exactly right. And, and there is definitely a conversation about the consolidation of transactions and hashing power in a smaller and smaller number of organizations. Mm. Interesting stuff. Um, how did you view this one as well? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why, but this number isn't a surprise to me. I don't think it's the first time I've seen this kind of stat that 95% of, of crypto exchange volumes are fake. Perhaps that's because I was at the block and, and it's one of the regular analytical pieces. But, you know, I've spoken to reputable CEOs of crypto exchanges and they're all quite transparent that, yes, they report volumes, but no, they can't uh, guarantee that they are absolutely accurate. And, and they mm-hmm. seem just as aware that there are market makers. I mean, when we say fake, we obviously mean kind of fake trading against themselves. Yeah. Uh, so manipulated might be very much the term which... More yeah, it's, just, like, it's complicated, isn't it? Like yeah. going back to Facebook there, but it's it's kind of that market makers and market takers are, are not just purely manipulating price. I mean, they if they control a lot of liquidity, they can manipulate price, but they also play an important role in markets that most regulators have accepted for, for many decades and most yeah, market Yeah, fundamental, but obviously in this realm, they aren't regulated and there's no one checking if they are or not. I did a piece uh, earlier this year on KuCoin where there were allegations of, you know, very thing, wash trading on, on exchange. Yeah. And they, they again, didn't really deny it. They were like, yeah, this happens on most exchanges. Yeah, lots of things coming out in the wash. If you're listening to <laughs> Jamie Bartlett's excellent OneCoin um, case of the missing crypto queen, oh, shout out, Jamie. brilliant. So yeah. brilliant. We'll have Jamie on the show in a couple of weeks. There are still lots of issues of scams and an unregulated position, which if you're in uh, you know, a regulated financial market, you can see why this stuff all still looks pretty scary. But it, do you throw the baby out with the bathwater here? I think there's a real risk that you do. I think that the this particular discussion about the Bitcoin ETF has been a long one. It, the, the people have wanted the Bitcoin ETF for 
a long, long time. It's been supported by many different well-funded and well-powered uh, companies out there. I think that more generally, if you if you open this up to digital assets more broadly, I think the nature of tokens and digital assets doesn't make it any easier or more difficult to uh, manipulate markets or to create fake trading volumes or anything like that. I think that it's it's really more about the business implementation of the application and the exchange and, and then um, how people trade. It is indeed. All right, it's time for a quick shill. You got any plans on the 23rd to the 24th of October, David? It's uh, it's going to be a big party. Yeah, it's going to be Cordicon, and you can join 11FS in London, uh, one of the top blockchain events in the world, provided by those guys over good old R3. Um, going to be more than 800 blockchain leaders, technologists, and, of course, yourself. You'll be there? I will be there, absolutely. If you want to hear from David Nickel in person, you've got to get yourself there. Dev Day and Biz Day, looking at all the major initiatives and key trends in blockchain. You can join one day or both, but registration's free. You can sign up now and space is limited. Head over to r3.com forward slash Cordicon for more information. And I'm sure I'll see you there. Alrighty, on with the show. The next story comes from Coindesk, and this is about the CFTC chairman confirming Ethereum is, in his view, a commodity. Uh, what he said is, we've been very clear on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a commodity. We haven't said anything about Ether until now. It's my view as the chairman of the CFTC that Ether is a commodity. Wow. Uh, Heath Hubbard of the CFTC continued to say that they're working with the SEC uh, on two cryptos and have agreed neither are securities. It's actually massive, massive news. Ether is now 100% not a security. Hundred percent. I don't know the. Uh, it's it's a view from from the chairman, which is pretty good. If if that's the first card in your deck, that's you you really, really don't good. see a speech like that by accident. Exactly that, right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like you've got to believe that when this statement was made, the SEC knew about it long before that statement was going to be made. It wasn't a, a, a land grab statement. This is this is kind of regulatory certainty. The other side of the coin, right? Uh, unintended. You've got sort of Libra marching forward against the wind. Uh, you've got Telegram sort of really having more than a wrist slap. It's like a, a real, you know, get your shit together. And then you've got this where it's like ETH. Everybody was like, oh, can we really work with permissionless? Can we really work in a world that's decentralized? Can we really work with this sort of asset? Uh, network tokens appear to be a thing. Yeah, so I, I mean the um, permissionless or the open nature of Ethereum I think is still something that people have to either learn how to work with or, or have to build stuff on top of in order to work with it. And, and the questions still remain about whether it can even be used by, by enterprises. But this is, this is really interesting if you take it with the lovely back and forth we had between David Marcus and, and Nick Sabo yeah. where they were arguing about whether Libra could be a medium of exchange, whether it would be better than Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And actually, again, thought, thought Marcus did a great job in uh, coming back in a very controlled manner, as, which, you know, you don't see that on Twitter all the time. He's the master of that. Like, wh- wherever that guy goes for his Zen training, <laughs> like, shout out David Marcus. You have an infinite backlog of patience and, like, I don't know, something good going on. He, he goes to Corticon for the Zen training, I think. Uh, um, <laughs> no, but if you then say that Ethereum is actually a commodity, I, I think it it opens up this next wave of, of conversation about how people are using assets that are actually regulated as commodities going forward whether you know if if you take the bitcoin maximalist approach whether you could use a commodity as a as a currency as a medium of exchange ethereum whether whether because it's a commodity you can use it as a different asset for staking or for or for payments or for something like that yeah because there's two things there there's using ether as a way of you know, 
store of value or a means of exchange. I, in other words, I use ETH to pay for a thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's using the ETH network. And to use the ETH network, I have to use ETH, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mm-hmm. actually using it as that commodity. It's access to that service sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we've seen both uh, Santander and BBVA have done public kind of work on the permissionless public Ethereum blockchain, which I think is really, really interesting and significant that they've done real-world transactions across that and they've made it regulated. So I do think there's an army of consultants out there who say, oh, you don't want any of this permissionless stuff. And actually, I think that's changing a little bit. There's definitely a view is that it has its place, but mm-hmm. it's not the only a- answer. But regardless, stepping back from permissioned, permissionless is sort of moot. The important thing here is actually what are you trying to get done and is a digital asset the right answer for you? Yeah, it, exactly. And how much do you have to build on top of that platform in order to make it do whatever it is that you want it to do. With the, you, you just mentioned a couple different uses of crypto that people are, are trying. And it's kind of you have to build in, in different directions for each use case. So I think combining that with, with again, the theme of the week, which is the, the regulatory approach and the regulatory clearance and clarity uh, is important. Yeah, just on David's point, in terms of this not being 100%, but being pretty close. I mean, Clayton's spoken several times at events and said very clearly, this is my view and my personal You'll make capacity. Clayton Christensen, is the, the, uh, I think it's the chair of the SEC, just for context. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My mate Clayton has <laughs> just been talking first, everywhere. First uh, and so they'll often say, you know, this is me speaking of personal capacity, not on behalf of the agency. And I believe that's probably what happened on this occasion uh, where... Talbot was speaking, uh, he does say it's my view as chairman of the CFTC, but I don't think he was speaking on behalf of the agency. They're usually quite careful to differentiate there. Indeed. But very close. That's as close as you get, right? Very, very close. Teetering on the edge. Um, All right. Well, I mean, there's more to come, but like, let's just recap. So in the week that Libra had payments giants, quote unquote, abandon it, in the week that the SEC halted um, a digital token offering, in the week that the SEC wasn't convinced that real Bitcoin markets exist, in the week that the CFTC chairman confirmed that Ethereum is a commodity, we also saw Tether and Bitfinex being sued for creating the largest bubble in history. What is with this week? <laughs> As a reporter, this must have been really annoying because you're like, could you just not space these out? Well, I mean, I report mainly on fintech now, so I'm just watching from afar like a spectator. Uh-huh. And my colleagues probably going at the block going crazy. But um, this is kind of actually, to be fair, a reporter's dream when uh-huh. these things kind of all go together and you really feel like you're in the middle of something important. Uh, so actually very excited. And I think that's a really good observation that we are in an important formative time for the future of crypto. And it does appear to me that some form of permissionless digital asset network, uh, crypto asset network, crypto network, however you want to describe them, will continue to exist in the future, both Bitcoin and Ethereum. The question is, how big will they be and what problem will they solve, which is a nice place to be. But back to Tether Bitfinex being sued. So a law firm out of New York, uh, Rush Friedman, has uh, filed a class action suit against Tether and its close ally Bitfinex for alleged market manipulation, concealment of illicit proceeds, and for creating the largest bubble in history, which is great sentence to put in a class action suit. <laughs> the latest in a string of questionable activities include Tether's printing of, quote, $300 million in USDT for a supposed swap, even though it later forgot to burn the USDT when the swap was complete. That action, coupled with other similar USDT prints, provides the basis for a lawsuit asserting that they were designed by Tether and Bitfinex to signal to the market that there was a rapidly growing demand for cryptocurrencies because each USDT printed represented another USDT. 
dollar invested into the market. Imagine if this was the only thing going on in the crypto world today. It was coming from producer Petra here, but like, wow. You know, people for some time have had concerns about this. These are pretty solid on the nose allegations. Um, we've been talking about, um, you know, Tether and Bitfinex for a while. Do you think this is going to drive us to a conclusion or are we going to be in court with this one forever? I mean, you couldn't say, unfortunately, not a lawyer, but I, I do think this was just a matter of time. I don't think anyone at <laughs> Bitfinex will be surprised. The only thing, I can't speak on a personal capacity, but I do know people who work there and they they are they do say you know these are genuinely good people and they seem quite dismayed that for whatever reason they they, they seem to have not followed protocol and have mm. let themselves down i mean it just shows that not just the approach the design of the solution the the way the companies are working together but the the activities and the protocols and the procedures uh, that go into a, a regulated activity are are nothing to mess with and it's something that, that you really have to think long and hard about. Um, and I think that you see both sides when you're working in financial services with financial institutions where, yeah, it takes longer to do market moving things, but it also means you don't run into speed bumps later on down the line like this. The other interesting thing about this one is that I thought it was interesting. It's a class action suit. We've thought about this before that using digital assets from the beginning, basically from the the beginning of the life of, of an asset or of a security, you're able to see who's held the, the security or you could potentially reach everyone who has held mm. uh, a security or an asset. So it could make the process of settling a class action suit a lot easier. It could make the actual liability that is posed by a class action suit a lot more exact uh, because yeah. you can actually see how many people could have a claim. And that's this this interesting, I, I don't know if it's a silver lining, but it's um, an interesting implication of that story. No, I think there is something interesting about the general mood music in the regulated world and the policy world has been pretty negative on crypto. But when you start looking at, for all of this activity that's deemed and alleged to be illicit, when you start to get into investigating it and putting together the picture... It's far better than it would be in the traditional world of financial services. Exactly, You've got this permanent, right. many copies of a permanent record that is you know, that is searchable almost real time. There are lots of of, of uh, DLT platforms like like ours that don't require everyone to trace the precedence of the asset from transaction to transaction to keep keep some privacy. You're still able to at least reach the entire network of holders with a communication to update an asset through corporate actions mm -hmm. or for voting events or anything like that or, or you know, hopefully not, but class action lawsuits, mm -hmm. it, um, it really allows a lot more precision through the entire process. Interesting times. Just to add kind of a geographical dimension, it's interesting that this was obviously filed in the States mm -hmm. and we are frequently reminded that Tether is still very, very popular in Asia. Mm. Ooh. Interesting point. There is definitely geopolitics behind the scenes of what's going on with crypto and the regulatory response and the global policymaker response. Uh, if you look at how China views it versus how the US views it versus everybody else, that geopolitical angle is not to be forgotten, um, especially since Venezuela did the Petro and so on. Alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover this week from Decrypt. Vitalik Buterin says proof of stake will make Ethereum safer. Definitely check that one out because um, they are perilously close to making it to ETH 2.0. And what does that mean for Ethereum Classic as well? Will that take on the mantle? Interesting to see. Story from Coindesk, MakerDAO's multi-collateral DAI token is launching on November the 18th. Keep your eye out for multi-collateral DAI because I think it was previously just ETH that was uh, mm -hmm. their collateral. And if you're not familiar with MakerDAO and you work in financial services, go just Google it and get your teeth into that because it's, uh, it's a massive public experiment on basically running governance as a community. Really, really interesting stuff. 
the block class action certification denied in a 32 million Centratech ICO lawsuit. Defendants ask to return Ether in a parallel case. I mean, Colin GP, uh, CGP, Colin G Platt, near your field, wherever you are with your Centratech t-shirt, that's going to be worth something at some point. <laughs> Alrighty, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the Week comes from Jameson Lopp at L-O-P-P on Twitter. It reads, today's IRS guidance is a hot mess. Uh, one, what if you have keys but no software from which to spend your asset? Uh, what if you never sell or transfer the asset and it drops 90% in value? What if the value of the asset isn't even trading at the time of the fork? Of course, this is referring to the IRS's latest guidance on the taxation of digital assets, which includes guidance on forks and airdrops. And it's a hot mess, as Jameson Lott put it. Wow, I mean, you know, the IRS has come out with some regulatory certainty, but it seems to have created more questions than it, than it solved. Yeah, the reaction was was pretty brutal. It's an interesting contrast between the uh, companies trying to launch regulated solutions and then the regulators trying to share guidance on how to launch those solutions. And, and no one seems to be happy with either one's proactive activity. I think what you see from uh, Jameson, but but a lot of the other activity on, on Twitter especially as well, was going through different what-if scenarios. And those things are really important. And I think that there are frankly too many what-if scenarios for the IRS to have thought through every single... They were in a hot spot. Um, implication right. to the nth degree before putting this out. I think there's something interesting about the, these assets are now in a position where in most jurisdictions there is an understanding of how to tax them. And there was an understanding that they weren't being adequately taxed by a lot of the platforms that were out there and they're attempting to close this in. Again, regulatory clarity is coming, but we've got a ways to go. Yeah, I mean, actually, I've, I've seen lots of progress here with accounting being integrated into exchanges and things, trying to make this slightly better. I would say it's, it's a, I think it's a point of contention for those not in crypto. When I speak to people, I say, oh, you know, Bitcoin, whatever, have you heard of it? What do you, what do you think? They'll say, oh, I've heard it's like a tax haven. And uh, I think it can be a point of, yeah, but kind of... There's something nice about the optics changing at long last, but also there's, there is an opportunity to, to your point, David, about um, the ability to do transaction monitoring and investigations on... Uh, using digital assets and, and kind of having a network of people that understand the status of that asset. Uh, you could get to a point in which if you bake accounting not into just the exchanges but around how you manage an asset, then you could make this a lot better for people. And, and it seems to be that it's issuing paper guidance rather than kind of going that extra yard. You could have done something really interesting here. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that how that progresses. Yeah, I think it will progress, right? I think it, it will uh, be an iterative process which should be fair. I think we all have this expectation that the regulator should come out with the right answer from the very beginning and have it be completely clear and have every scenario thought through. And, and I just don't think that's this quite realistic. Hard. This stuff's hard. Alrighty. Uh, well, that wraps up this week's show, even though there's all of that news in it. Uh, just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Where can people find out more about you, Isabel? So I'm at Sifted, sifted.eu. We report on European startups. And my Twitter is I underscore Woodford. Brilliant. How about yourself, David? You can find me at Corticon on the 23rd and 24th. And if you want to meet there, I'm at Nickel right now on Twitter. Another good uh, Twitter handle I, right I there. pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. All right. Um, big thank you <laughs> to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Laura Petra and Hannah, Alex, our editor who's not here, and Michael who's stepping in for him. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or uh, email me directly, simon at 11FS.com. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs>